You are now listening to the October 15th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles. Today, we will continue to learn about Apostle Thomas. Let's begin by reading a passage from John chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. The disciples were very excited to tell Thomas, We saw the resurrected Jesus. We saw the nail-pierced hands and spear-pierced side. It was really Jesus. But Thomas responded sternly, I will not believe that unless I see his nail-pierced hands and speared Pierce's side and put my finger into them myself. After this exchange, eight days passed. Let's continue to read verses 26 and 27. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Eight days later, all the disciples, including Thomas, were in the house. The door was locked as before, but the resurrected Jesus appeared to them again. Then Jesus told Thomas this, Reach out your finger and put it in my pierced hand, and reach out your hand and put it in my speared side, and do not be an unbelieving one, but be a believing one. Imagine how dramatic that encounter must have been. Jesus, whom Thomas loved so much, was standing in front of him. Thomas had boldly declared, I will go with Jesus and die with him when Jesus was going to Bethany despite the potential threat from the Jews. Thomas had asked Jesus, How can I follow the way so I can see you again when Jesus said he was leaving to prepare a place for them? Thomas truly loved Jesus. He had unwavering affection for Jesus. The Jesus who died on the cross was resurrected and appeared to Thomas. Imagine how he must have felt His eyes must have been filled with tears, and his heart must have been filled with joy. We can only imagine how his heartbeat must have been in hyperdrive when seeing the Lord. Then Thomas confessed this. In verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. This confession by Thomas represents the climax in the book of John. The theme of the book of John is Jesus is God. 
So John recorded seven I am's and seven signs intentionally to reflect this theme. The seven I am's are, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way and the truth and the life, and I am the vine. The seven signs are changing the water into wine, healing the royal official's son, healing the sick who had been suffering for 38 years, feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, healing the blind who had been born blind, and raising the dead Lazarus back to life. By adding Thomas's confession at the end of the Gospel of John, it clearly emphasized the theme that Jesus is God. It was like an orchestral symphony moving toward the end of the music with a majestic and dramatic ambiance. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. There are two spiritual principles that we can draw from Thomas's life. It is through God's grace we come to believe God's word as is, but it is not wrong to have doubts when listening to God's word or when reading the Bible. Perhaps we may have legitimate doubts when we read the Bible deeply, but what should we do when we have doubts? We should not keep those doubts to ourselves, but ask questions about those doubts and seek answers. Thomas had a doubt in his heart. Then he asked Jesus right away, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Then Jesus answered him gently. Jesus' answer to Thomas has become one of the most cherished statements in the Word of God. Here's John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appeared to Thomas and asked him to check out his wounds and not to be a non-believer, but to be a believer. Beloved listeners, what is really dangerous is having doubts, but pretending to believe. Pretending to believe when you have doubts, pretending to believe because others seem to believe, and pretending to have assurance when you actually don't. That's dangerous because that would be like living a false spiritual life. Wouldn't it be great if we can have faith by crying out, I believe, I believe. Wouldn't it be great if we can have faith just by attending special retreats? But faith does not happen in such ways. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us this very clearly. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. To gain assurance over doubt, we must learn God's word. When our spirits are filled with the word of life, the word of truth would hold our spirits firmly and will transform our doubts to assurance. Ask pastors or other brothers and sisters who have assurance. Seek answers from the Bible when you have doubts. I hope we will all be able to move to assurance from doubt. Being part of the community of believers is important. Thomas did not meet Jesus when he was not in the community, when he was on his own. John, who recorded the book of John, 
did not take this lightly and recorded this. Here's John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And here's the first part of John chapter 20, verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. John recorded how Thomas was not in the group the first time, and contrasted that with how he was with the group the second time. Then Thomas met Jesus there, and he stayed with the community. Beloved listeners, it is very important to be part of the church community. When we become tired and weary, we must gather together as a community so together we can worship God, listen to God's words, and encourage one another and love and comfort each other. Then our doubts will turn into assurance. That is why we need to cherish the community of believers. The Puritans used to attend all community gatherings. When people asked, why do you put all your efforts into attending all of your gatherings? They answered, it is because we never know when God will do amazing things. I think about this when I notice some members of congregation miss the church services. I think to myself, he or she should have been at today's service. This is not thinking he or she should have listened to today's sermons and feel guilty and repent. It's because I know that particular person is going through a difficult time in his or her life. I know this person needs the support from other believers. Coming to the service, singing praises together, and listening to the word would have offered strength, comfort, and healing in his or her soul. It is with a loving heart that they could recognize the wonderful work of God and experience the grace and hope that the Lord gives. I hope that everyone who listens to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is part of a community of believers. I hope we all have a home church where we find other believers. Through the community of believers, each and every one of us may revive our spirits. As a body of believers, we would be called Christians who have assurance over doubts. Let us wrap up things for the day. India's main religion is Hinduism. And India is also the birthplace of Buddhism. Yet in India, there is a sacred Christian place. It's called Santhami Church, also known as St. Thomas Cathedral Basilica and National Shrine of St. Thomas, which is purportedly built on the tomb of Apostle Thomas. According to Christian history, Thomas went to Chennai, India, the farthest place in terms of the distance Jesus' disciples traveled to spread the gospel. He was martyred there. He was killed by a spear a local person threw at him. It has been told that Thomas knelt down and prayed this before he died. We praise and glorify you, Lord. There is this last word that says, We praise and glorify you, Lord at the center of Santhami Church in Chennai, India. I will believe when I see the resurrected Jesus myself. That is what Thomas said and what gave him the nickname Doubting Thomas. But when he was martyred, he prayed, We praise and worship you, Lord. This last moment 
was very moving. What he said in his dying breath, he showed no doubt. Thomas always looked to the Lord, felt his presence, and worshipped him whenever and wherever, even when he was about to be martyred. I hope we will be able to make Thomas's life our own lives so we can ask sincere questions whenever we have doubts. That way, we hope to find answers and learn from the Bible. We would be able to encourage each other in the church community, the Lord's body, to gain assurance over doubts. We would then be able to move forward in our walk with the Lord with assurance. This concludes today's episode of the 12 Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Myler of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is the common grace of God. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Today we talk about the favor of God, and we're going to be seeking to answer some of those common questions that everybody has. Questions like, what is God's favor? How do I get it? Can I lose it? And questions like these. And we have a, a devotional guide for you. If you didn't get one yet, you can get them on the way out. They're free. Make sure to grab one. And uh, it's written by the staff here at ACC, and we hope that you're blessed. You can just do one a day, and we'll go through it together. And hopefully it blesses you and encourages you. And if you're watching online, if you want one, and are far away or just need one, we'll mail you one. Just send us an email and we would be happy to get that to you. So as I began putting this series together, I mentioned last week or two weeks ago that I was actually a little bit uneasy. I was feeling weird and I realized what was actually weighing on me. And it was the fact that the loudest voices on this topic of the favor of God have been mainly the prosperity preachers that we, have, that we see constantly on our TVs. And if you ever stop on a religious station, you probably know what I'm talking about. But if you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel and what it is, uh, I'll let somebody else a lot smarter than me sum it up. It's Dr. John MacArthur. He sums it up this way. The prosperity gospel is the notion that God's favor is expressed mainly through physical health and material prosperity, and that these blessings are available for the claiming by anyone who has sufficient faith. If you have faith, you can have a Mercedes. That sounds good, doesn't it? If you have the faith, you can have a mansion, you can have a million dollars. Now, the key, not surprisingly, you guys want the key to unlocking God's favor? Is for people to demonstrate their faith by sowing financial seeds into the ministry of the prosperity preachers. How convenient. It's wonderful. You can show your faith by just giving me the money that I need to buy the plane that I need to fly around in. Of course, millions and millions of people around the globe have given their money to these uh, prosperity preachers to, ex to just support their ridic ridiculously extravagant lifestyles, which is an, uh, just an understatement. And I'm not going to go off on that, but it's simply, and I'm going to step on some toes here probably and some watching online, it's nothing more than a Ponzi scheme, right? With those on top getting rich at the expense of those on the bottom. That's all the prosperity gospel is. So when I decided to do this thing on the favor of God, I'm like, well, not everybody here knows me. People watching online don't know me. Maybe they think I have prosperity leanings. <gasps> you know, I get all my, all of my clothes are goodwill or garage sale items, and including this shirt right here, as a matter of fact. So you know that that's not the truth. I'm actually excited to do this series, and here's why. I'm convinced that this topic needs to be recovered biblically. And I hope to, and Pastor Brandon and Dr. Tonkinson, who uh, teaches over at Valley, we're, we're all going to contribute into this series, and I hope that we do justice in bringing a biblical perspective on God's favor. I want to read something out of this little devotional guide. I got the privilege to write the first little part of it, but I want to read something I wrote because if I don't read it, I'll mess it up. Uh, but I did write this. So here's what I wrote. In speaking of God's favor, however, a word of caution we should seek to resist the temptation to treat God's favor as a code to crack so that we can ultimately obtain all the worldly comforts and luxuries we want. Yes, God's favor is demonstrated in many tangible ways towards us, but now listen to this, but his favor is ultimately found in him drawing close to us, forgiving us, and allowing us to know and experience him personally. He's our treasure. Amen? God is our treasure. If you're looking for the favor of God going, what can I get from God? You're missing the whole point. God is the giver of good gifts. If the gifts are good, how much one better is the one giving those gifts, right? Amen. 
And then I say this, at the end of the day, we should aspire to be like King David, who wanted nothing more than this, Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Amen? God is our treasure. Um, one of the things I want to say right from the get-go is there's no code to crack when it comes to God's favor. As this sermon series goes on, I hope that you see God's favor. God is incredibly good to all of us all the time, more so than we could possibly imagine. Matthew 7, 11 says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father in heaven how to give good gifts to those who ask him? Our God is a generous God. He's a generous God. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, if you're watching online and you're going, well, I don't know about this God that you're talking about. The God that I'm talking about loves you and is generous and gracious towards you as well. And I hope to show you that. So to get started, very simply, let's define what we're talking about. The favor of God. What is it? I read a million different definitions <laughs> from a million different pastors and theologians. And I boiled it down to this to try to make it as simple as possible. The favor of God. The favor of God defined is simply this. It's divine kindness, goodwill, and regard. It's divine kindness, goodwill, and regard. God's favor, for example, can be seen in that he is gracious, patient, compassionate, and merciful towards undeserving mankind. Thus, it's not uncommon for pastors and theologian, but theologians to use the term God's favor and God's grace interchangeably. You'll hear it, and if you ever read on this subject, you're going to see that they do that a lot, and I do that as well. God's favor can also be seen, for example, in his general regard for mankind, that he even thinks about us. Psalm 8, David says this. I love Psalm 8. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, this is a messianic psalm. We see in the New Testament that this is talking about Christ in the New Testament. But in its immediate context, what David, the immediate context, David is just, he's marveling. He's looking up at the heavens and going, man, of everything you created, God, why do you even think about me? Why do you even think about me? Now, you and I have an advantage. This generation has an advantage over every other generation. And you want to know why? Because we have launched Hubble telescopes deep into space that are even looking deeper into space. And we are seeing things that David could never have fathomed. I mean, he's staring at the, at the moon and the stars and is marveling that God would think of him. Have you ever looked at these pictures of the Hubble telescope? They're incredible. I mean, it's like God is just this artist out there drawing and making this beautiful creation that is unbelievable. And you look at how vast and how big and how amazing and beautiful the creation is. And then you stop and you think, that God thinks about me. That God knows my name. He knows your name. And by the way, when David looks out at the stars, he's not just thinking about the physical universe. He's also thinking, he, David understands there's an unseen world too. And that unseen world is pretty incredible. As a matter of fact, the very next set of verses says, you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So David considers that there are angels flying before the throne of God. Isaiah chapter 6, the cherubim and seraphim flying before the throne of God, praising him day and night. And you have creation, you have stars, moon, and galaxies, you have angels. And David thinks about all of it. And he goes, what is man that you think about us? I mean, surely you would be thinking about the angels or something else or some, someone else. But no, you, you think about us. That's incredible. And by the way, speaking of God's favor, 
Look at starting in verse six of all the ways that God has favored, showered you and me with favor. You have given him, man, dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish in the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Our God is a good God. And he has put you and I in a very special place in his creation. Of course, God's favor isn't something that we can demand or coerce from him. God's favor is bestowed at his divine prerogative when, where, and how he sees fit. Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If you're new with us, this will be new to you, but if you're regular, you hear me say this all the time. The minute you think God owes you anything is the minute your theology will be off in everything. The minute you think God owes mankind anything is the very moment your theology will be off in everything. God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. So anything that he gives to us in way of grace and mercy and compassion and patience is his favor towards us. It's him being gracious and kind towards you and towards me. Now, this doesn't preclude the biblical truth that there are certain attributes that God looks upon with greater favor. So for example, for you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. Or consider this one, James 4, 6. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, we're going to be talking about verses like this in the weeks to come. But here's where we're going to start today. Theologians when, and pastors, when you come to the topic of the favor of God, theologians break it down and into categories. And one of the first categories that theologians break it down to is what's called God's common grace or his common favor that he shows towards all mankind. And this is towards the righteous and the unrighteous alike. In other words, God's good to everybody. In in a general sense, God is good to everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a believer. It doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever. God is good to us. The great Scottish theologian John Murray defines God's common grace this way. Common grace is every favor of whatever kind or degree, degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. That's common grace. So for example, Psalm 145, 9 says, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. God is just good to us. He's been good to you and to me. So for example, let's get specific. The very fact that God even created mankind is an act of undeserved divine kindness and favor. Think about it. A hundred years ago, look around this room. Not one of us was even alive. None of us existed. We didn't exist a hundred years ago, but yet here we all are in God's creation, enjoying the sun and the moon and the stars. We're enjoying all of it. Here we are. And here's the good news. The best is yet to come. If you think this is good, it only gets better, far better. That's how good God is to you and to me. He created us. He didn't have to. Not to mention the fact that God made mankind distinct from everything else that he created. For mankind alone has been created in the image of God, the imago Dei. That's Latin. That's from the Latin Bible. It simply means the image of God. You and I have been created in the image of God. If you're here today and you're not a believer, do you want to know how special you are? You are an image bearer of God. (laughs) Now think about this for a moment, folks. God, you go, well, where's God's favor in my life? Out of everything that God has created in this universe, you alone are an image bearer of God. You alone, me and you. You know, there's always the question, well, is there life on another planet? I, people, people come to me, they go, well, do you think there's life on another planet? I don't know. 
How would I know? (laughs) But if there is, it's not as significant as you and me. It is not as significant as you and me because you and I alone were created in the image of God. Whatever might be out there on other planets is simply part of God's creation that is under our dominion, yours and mine. He has set us over his creation. Amen? God is good to us. He has a common grace towards mankind. Aren't you glad you weren't born a turtle? (laughs) Or a fish? Or a giraffe or something else? No, you and I were made in the image of God. And this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, while there are volumes that could be written on this subject, I just want to point out that you are unique and I am unique. Folks, even the angelic beings that were created are not created in God's image. You know, many people go, well, so-and-so, when they die, they, they went off to be an angel. That would be a downgrade. It really would. If you died and became an angel, you would be downgraded from what your current state is. Only Jesus, it was Jesus who became the God-man, not the God-angel, not the God-giraffe, not, he, God took on human flesh for eternity. He will forever be the God-man. That is how much favor God has towards you and towards me. Author Eric Metaxas, um, and this is Genesis 126, let us make man in our image. Eric Metaxas says this, because God has made us in his image, we are not incidental to what he has done. We are central to it, which makes us see that his love for us is so impossible and so unimaginably great that it really is infinitely too much for us to bear. His favor towards us is so incredible that we're almost crushed under the weight of it. It's incredible how good God is to you and to me. The late, great Francis Schaeffer had this relevant insight about the image of God in modern culture. If you know Francis Schaeffer, he's dead. Just a brilliant man. He said this, people, mind you, this was written about 70 years ago. People today are trying to hang onto the dignity of man but they do not know how to because they have lost the truth that man is made in the image of God. See, we are raising a generation of kids and we're telling them that this universe popped into existence from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing, and you are just an accidental byproduct of all the chemical reactions that are happening at random. random. And then we're saying, but but you're important. It, It makes no sense. And the younger generation realizes it. They go, this makes no sense. And that is why we have to return and tell our youth, you're not an accident. God, who created all things seen and unseen, created you in his image. You're an image bearer of God. That will change. That will change the next generation if we start teaching them like that. Now, God's common grace towards all mankind isn't just limited to the fact that he created us in his image but it is shown time and again in very practical ways. So for example, brace yourselves for what I'm about to say because some of you aren't going to believe it. God created the institute of marriage as an act of divine favor. And some of you are going, if you knew my marriage, you would know that's not God's favor. (laughs) I'm joking, of course. But God created marriage as a source of companionship for us, right? Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is not not just for Christians. 
It is an institution established as a blessing for society. It's, it's God's common grace towards all of us. And we make fun of marriage, and especially in our culture, if you turn on the TV, the sitcoms are often mocking marriage. You have weak men and all this other stuff. But the fact is, without marriage, you have no society. God knows what he's doing. And as, a, as a, an act of common grace towards us all, he says, I'm going to establish this thing called marriage. And man, I'm going to give you woman. And, and woman, I'm going to give you man. Cherish each other. Marriage, of course, is the foundation of the family which is also an expression of God's common grace. The family is an expression of God's common grace towards all of us. So for example, Psalm 127, three through five says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. You know what's sad to me is the modern feminist movement is telling women that children are a burden and that you only reach your fulfillment if you go get a job and do what men can do and make as much as men can do and all this other stuff. Bible does not talk about that. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children in one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So when you see believers and unbelievers alike who are married, happily married, enjoying their children and grandchildren, folks, that is God's common grace. That is God's common grace towards us all. Of course, God's common grace can be seen in so many little practical ways each and every day if we look for it. Matthew 5 says this, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Amen. Many of us woke up this morning and were thinking, well, I'm going to go learn about God's favor. I want to know if I have any of it. And you walked outside, the sun was on your face. Guess what? That was God's favor. That was God's favor showering down on you. And when the seasons change and the rains come and then it snows and God allows this cycle that we live in and this, this wonderful earth that we live on, to continue in its cycles, that's his favor towards all of us, both believers and unbelievers. Of course, the irony of God's common grace is that while fallen man might deny God's existence, he does so while enjoying the benefits of God's favor and his grace in a million different ways each and every day. But here's the deal. While we might expect fallen man to take for granted all the many ways that God showers us with his favor each and every day, we who are believers, we should abound in thanksgiving praise and song to the God who richly blesses us. Amen? Psalm 9.1 says this, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. Listen, when you see that last part, I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. It's, it's easy to think, well, I'll tell of the time that you delivered the Israelites out of slavery after 400 years in Egypt, or I'll, I'll tell about how you allowed the Israelites to return from the Babylonian captivity. Yes, those are ways to speak of God's great deeds, but you know how else you can speak of God great, God's great deeds? The next time you're at lunch and the waitress or waiter comes, you can say, praise God that the sun rose today. And for the birds that I hear chirping, it's a beautiful thing. This is God's favor. You can tell of God's wonderful deeds, not just on a grand scale, but on a very simple scale each and every day as you just abound in thankfulness. Psalm 105 says this, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Folks, there is no mother nature. There is only God Almighty, amen? But as we are living in a society where everybody ascribes it to mother nature. Folks, we won't do that. We can't do that. We have to be a people who are proclaiming the goodness of the Lord. When the sun rises, that's God's favor towards us. When the sun sets, that's his grace putting us to bed. When the rains come, it's him showering us from above. 
And it's all from him. That's why I said, there's not a code to crack in this sense. We serve a good, good God. The God who created all things seen and unseen is so very good. He's patient, kind, and merciful. And if you're here today and you don't know him, he knows you. He created you. He set your feet in this generation. You bear his image and he loves you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says this, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And you go, well, how can I give thanks in all circumstances? That seems impossible. Folks, the fact that you can see and hear and walk, the fact that, again, the sun is on your face, you have air in your lungs, all of this is reason to praise and thank God. So the next time you're talking with somebody, maybe somebody who's a little bit hard-hearted towards God, and they say, well, what has God ever done for me? You can start by saying, well, that's a funny thing you ask. Because the fact of the matter is, God has been incredibly good to us. His favor is upon all of us. By the way, do you want a powerful example of God's common grace towards all of us? One that we should be praising him for constantly? It is the common grace God shows in restraining evil. Amen? Pastor and theologian Sam Storms talks about what would happen if God lifted his restraining hand upon society. Were God completely to lift or withdraw or suspend this particular activity, our society would eventually be uninhabitable. I would argue it would be uninhabitable overnight. The wickedness of mankind would engulf the world and bring it to the verge of utter chaos and corruption. Imagine, folks, living in a world where anarchy was the standard and there was no stability, no security, no peace. Can you imagine such a world? Well, actually, we got a small taste of this two summers ago when parts of Seattle were taken over by Antifa. Let me ask you a question. Did any of you find the urge to move to Seattle when that was happening? No, you didn't. Because it was a horrible thing. And if you ask those living in those parts where that was, that, that was not a good thing, where anarchy reigns. So the next time you guys, you are driving to church or anywhere for that matter on a paved road in a city that has police, in a country that has um, a government and has an army, a standing army, you thank God and praise God where you have the freedoms to come and worship God. That is God's favor towards you and me. Amen? Amen. And we can't forget that because we need to be a thankful people. We need to be a thankful people in a nation that isn't always thankful. There is a spirit of discontentment and discord in this country, is there not? People are angry, bitter, and fighting on both sides and every which way and every possible, you know, part of the internet. People are arguing, fighting. Wouldn't it be amazing if there were a thankful people there praising the name of God, talking about how good and gracious and favorable he has been to all of us in so many ways. Really, I could offer you a challenge right now is just begin to let your mind run wild this week of all the ways that God shows us one grace and one favor after another in this lifetime. You, there's no end. You can go to no end on this subject. It's literally the case. God's restraint of evil is also a powerful reminder of another common grace God shows towards us all. You want to know another way that God is gracious towards us all? He hasn't brought the final judgment yet. Amen? And that's good because had he brought the final judgment, you and I either wouldn't be alive and, and or many of us wouldn't be saved yet. But God has been patient so that many would come to repentance. Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Mankind, most of mankind has no idea just how important this 
God has done us a favor. This is the one favor he's done for us above all is he has been patient in bringing his final judgment and sending his son to die for the sins of men that whoever would call upon his name, the name of Jesus would be saved. Amen. The greatest of all God's favor. Now, one of the greatest displays of God's favor, and I'm going to keep us on a good click here. I'm almost done is the universe that he created, which testifies to his existence. You want to know how good God is? It's as if he wrote his signature in the stars. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day, they pour out speech and night to night, they reveal knowledge. There is no speech or uh, no words. Are there words whose voice is not heard? Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. If anyone ever asks you, well, where's God been gracious to me? Go look at the stars. It's as if he wrote his name up there so that you could see that he exists. Romans 1.20 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Tonight, when you go home and you look up into the stars and you, you see God's handiwork and you praise him, say, God, thank you for writing your name in the stars in that sense. Thank you for just making it so clear that you exist that is such a good gift to me. Eric Metaxas again says this, the degree of fine tuning is so great that it's, that it's as if right after the universe began, someone could have destroyed the possibility of life within by subtracting a single dime's mass from the whole or adding a single dime's mass to it. This universe, folks, is infinitely designed for you, for you and for me. And God has set, us, set our dominion over it. He's put our, his image on us. If you're wondering if God's favor is upon you today, the answer is it is. You're experiencing it in a thousand different ways. The sun in your face, the air in your lungs, the family and friends in your life, the security and consistency we all take for granted, all of that and more is God's favor. And as this sermon series goes on, we are just tipping, we are just scratching the tip of the iceberg of God's favor. So you don't want to miss the weeks to come. But sadly, I do think that many of us, we wake up each day and you know how we feel? We feel as if God doesn't even know my name. I'm not sure God even knows my name. Does God even know who I am? Folks, the message is he does. You're not just anybody. You have been created in his image. You are the pinnacle of his creation. Now, I want to say one thing as I wrap up. The Bible says that we are created in God's image and we are really literally the pinnacle of all that God has created. He has set everything else under our feet. All other dominion is under us. But what we don't want to do with this doctrine is become narcissistic with it. We are the chief of all that God has created, but to what end? To his glory. We exist for his glory. We're not, he, we're, God hasn't created us and made us the center of the universe. He created us so that we would acknowledge him as the center of the universe. Amen? Amen. So we don't want to get narcissistic with that doctrine. But here's what I want to say today, guys. If you're here today, know this, there is, you are not, there's nothing about your life that is incidental, accidental, or coincidental. And by coincidence, I spelled coincidentally wrong. Um, somebody pointed that out after the first service. I think there's an I, another I in there somewhere or something like that. But there's nothing incidental, accidental, or coincidental, coincidental about your life. God loves you. He created you. You've been made in his image. His favor is upon you in a thousand different ways. And as you're going to see in the weeks to come, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Do you know what all of creation would say to you if they could? All of creation, all the turtles, giraffes, all the angels, you know what they'd say to you if they could? 
Blessed are you, most highly favored of God. And any one of those angels would change places with you in a heartbeat. So if you're here today and you don't know God, the message is very simple. Stop running from him and run to him. He's a God that loves you and he created you and you bear his image. And if you're here today and you're already a believer and you know that, that part of God's favor in your life, then be this. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Amen? Be someone that's always talking about how good our God is. I finished with this challenge. Seek to be a person who continually praises the name of the Lord for his favor and grace, especially in the presence of those who are yet to believe. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you. And God, forgive us. Forgive me of the many times, Lord, I doubt your goodness, and yet I walk in it continually. Your favor is upon mankind. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for us? But Lord, you do. You know us all by name. And I pray, God, for anyone here, anyone that's watching online that feels like you have maybe forgotten about them or that you feel far away, or maybe they're not even sure what's going on. God, may they today know that they are special, that they are created in your image. And God, that your love for us abounds, even to the point of sending your son to die for the sins of men, that whoever might call upon his name would be saved. So God, as we go, let us be a people forever proclaiming your goodness, being thankful in all circumstances. And God, may we be a light in this world, Father, where there's nothing but anger and discord and bitterness, may we be a people proclaiming your name. We love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. God bless you, thank you for coming. We'll see you right here next week.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. God is making me more like Christ. Therefore, I should be diligent by faith to act on his word. I should be diligent to trust in him. That's what he's doing. He saved me for a relationship with him. And when I forget this, practically speaking, when I forget that, then I don't function rightly, as we'll see. I'm actually useless and unfruitful in my relationship with Jesus. If I forget, practically speaking, that God saved me to make me more like his son on a daily basis, and that's what he's doing now through every circumstance, when I am short-sighted from that, as I look at every instance in life, I'm blind to the reality of those things, then I'm useless and unfruitful in my relationship with Jesus. Why did he call me out of this world and choose me to be his, as we'll see? Like the Holy One who called us, be holy in all your behavior, First Peter chapter 1, God's Word should be working in my heart. We are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war with our souls, First Peter chapter 2. We are no longer to live for the lust of men, but for the will of God, First Peter chapter 4. When God's Word's working in my heart and I see it in relationship to this life and what He is doing in me, I'm going to be useful and fruitful. But when I just get focused on this right here, I'm not going to be useful and fruitful, short-sighted, short-sighted. When I begin to see this life as everything in Christ that he wants to work through me and everything for his glory, whatever circumstances come upon me, whatever difficulties come upon me, if I don't see it that way, guess what? It's a zero. When I don't see my life in light of the salvation that God has brought to me, and as we will see, is bringing. This is a powerfully motivating message to get our eyes off the temporal circumstances and to remember what Jesus Christ has saved us unto. What he has saved us unto. What he is doing in our lives. Take a look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. You see, God didn't just save us to go do our own thing. He purified us to be his own possession. He purified us to glorify him. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Remember that last thing on that list, right? To those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might become the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. We'll see this in a minute. And whom he called, these he justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. God's plan is not simply for us to be cleansed and that's it. Don't forget. He is working out the character of his son in our lives. Every single day, through every circumstance, he's using his word to do that as we trust Jesus. Turn to Romans 13. Romans 13. Verse 11. We've got to wake up from our sleep. We've got to pull the blinders off and recognize what God is doing, why he saved us. Otherwise, we're going to be useless and unfruitful. Romans 13, verse 1, And do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to waken from sleep, 
For now, this is a very interesting statement. Salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Speaking of our ultimate glorification, we were saved, we're being saved, we will be saved, right? It is near, it's closer every single day. And notice what he says here. He says, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore, in light of our salvation, in light of what God is doing and what he will do, we are motivated to then bring forth the character of Christ as we trust in him. Actions on our part based on a real relationship. Let us therefore lay aside, I'm laying it aside as I trust Christ, the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us what? Behave properly as in the day, not carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality nor strife or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with him, letting his word work in your heart and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. God predestined us for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit in the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 It is God's will for us, 1 Thessalonians 4, our sanctification. Are you going to cooperate with Him? Confessing sin, relying on His Word, obeying Him, letting His Word transform your thinking? Or are you going to forget? You're going to forget about why the Lord Jesus saved you. You're going to forget. You see, we are to diligently supply these things in the context of faith, recognizing what Christ is doing in us. When we look at this life alone, forgetting what we've been saved from and what we're saved unto, we will be useless and blind to his purposes. Some of you do not have these qualities. And thus it is because you have forgotten your former purification from sins. You've forgotten why Jesus saved you. You've forgotten that purification on a practical basis. We were saved to gain his glory. We were saved to manifest his character. We were saved to bring him glory. And he wants to do that in every circumstance of our lives as we trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, allow his word by faith to work in your heart Stop being short-sighted and start looking at the big picture. He's making me like Jesus Christ, and I am on the way to glory. We need to see that. So let's take a look at our passage again. For if these qualities, 2 Peter 1, 8, are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his former purification from sins. And then here, this is really important because it's connected, and this helps really bring back the understanding of what I just explained. Verse 10, Therefore, therefore, in light of this, and you can actually translate this, therefore, or wherefore, rather... Rather than being forgetful and not understanding about your salvation, forgetting that, do something. He says, wherefore rather, or therefore, brethren, seeking to believers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you what practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Very interesting statement. Therefore, wherefore rather, instead of being short-sighted and blind to why God saved you, to your former purification from sins, he saved you from sin. Don't live the way you used to live. You should be becoming more like Christ, right? Therefore, rather than that, brethren, speaking to believers... Be all the more diligent. Same word. Make every effort to do what? 
to make certain, make certain, that's the verb. Make every effort to make certain, to be sure of something. Be diligent to be sure. What is he saying to be sure of? To make certain about, what is it? Look at the end of verse 10. His calling and choosing of you. The term calling in context speaks of his calling of us. We saw it back in verse 3. We were called by his glory and excellence. We see the idea of being called unto salvation in Scripture. And it's through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we were called by God into a saving relationship. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. You can read that again. Galatians 1, 6. We were called by the grace of God. We have a heavenly and holy calling. Hebrews 3, 1, 2 Timothy 1, 9. God is faithful who called us into fellowship with his son, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Like the Holy One who called us, 1 Peter 1, we're to be holy in our behavior. 1 Peter 2, 9, we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light that we might proclaim his excellencies. We were in darkness and God called us out of our sinful life through the gospel. Like the Holy One who called us. So he says, make sure, be diligent to make sure you were actually called. To make sure you were called and chosen as we're going to see. We see, how do we do that? He says, to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And by the way, notice what he says. Therefore, brethren. He's saying it did happen, right? Make certain. Be diligent to make certain or sure of his calling and choosing. Very interesting. Term choosing, we see throughout scripture that God chose us. Ephesians chapter 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, God chose us. And we respond by faith, but he chose us. First Peter 1, 1, we see that the aliens and sojourners are those who are chosen, who are chosen. God called us, he chose us. Romans chapter 8, again, those who he called, right? He also justified. So we are to be diligent by faith to do something, to affirm, to confirm, to make sure of his calling, to make it sure. Notice, if it was at that point, I'd be wondering, what does he mean by that? Do I just feel that I'm saved, that I feel that I'm called? What does he mean by that? But notice he explains the end of verse 10. For, here's how you make sure. For as long as you do these things continually, habitually, that's what he's speaking of. Those things, remember? Those things that we saw earlier that come from a real relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're really saved, these things should be manifest if you're not blind or short-sighted. As long as you do these things, practice them continually, habitually, you will never stumble. And I think the context of this is eternally stumbling. You will never eternally stumble because the life of Christ is manifest in you and it is making sure in your heart that Jesus did call you and choose you. So how do you make sure? Quite ironic, right? It's a paradox. We make sure by allowing Christ to function in us and we do these things by faith. And as long as we're functioning this way, we're making our salvation sure. Now that doesn't mean we are the ones that assure our salvation. God saves us and we're saved. But it is being assured in our lives because Christ is functioning through us. 
And as long as his character is manifest in you, you see you're never going to stumble because you were really saved. He's not saying you can lose your salvation. He's saying that true believers, when they function rightly and are not blind and short-sighted, there is an assurance of his calling and choosing of you. You see, when you're walking in Christ, he's doing it through you. You know it's him. You're doing it by faith. He's changing you. He's producing these things in your life. That's an assurance. So what's interesting here is in parallel, and people have shared this, and I believe it's true. They say this is basically a parallel statement to earlier saying, make every effort to supply these things. And here, be diligent to assure. Therefore, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you what? Practice these things. It's not work salvation. It's salvation that works, right? You will never stumble. Here we have the reality that if the manifestation of Christ is in your life, you're not going to stumble because you're saved. You're not going to eternally stumble. I think that's the context. The next verse really lays into that because it talks about entering into his eternal kingdom. True believer will never stumble. But guess what? If you are not manifesting these things and you never have manifested these things, maybe you aren't saved. Maybe you aren't going to enter his eternal kingdom. True believers will. They will never stumble. Look at this wonderful explanation in verse 11. For in this way, in what way? Making sure of your salvation by practicing these things in the context of having everything pertaining to life and godliness through a true relationship with Jesus as these things are manifest in obedience to his word. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and I do what I say? If you have a real relationship, it's going to make sure and certain of your salvation. So be diligent. Be diligent to apply these things in your life each day as you trust Jesus Christ. Be diligent to do so because as you do, you make sure you're calling and choosing of Jesus, and you will never stumble. Notice what he says. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Hey, this is talking about eternity with the Lord. His eternal kingdom. With our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the entrance will be abundantly supplied. You're not not going to make it. You're going to make it because you are saved. Because you are, because your life manifests in evidence, and it is giving you the assurance of that reality. Make certain of your calling and choosing. Because if you do these things, it is an evidence that you are saved and you are on your way to eternity with the living God. And it's not by externals. It's by a changed heart in the context of reliance on Jesus Christ. In your faith, supply these things. Our lives should be different. We should be on a continual basis diligently applying these realities by God's word to the circumstances in our life. And if we are not, we are blind and short-sighted, forgetting what God is doing and has done for us by saving us. Tremendous reality, we are going to spend eternity with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the door is wide open. It's not going to be closed. You're not going to stumble if you truly are manifesting these characters from a real relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. Those who have a faith of the same kind as the apostles, verse 1. 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.16. Turn there. This is his final letter. The Apostle Paul was certain of his calling and choosing, by the way. He didn't doubt it. He was certain of it. 2 Timothy 4.16. A lot of people are certain of their calling and choosing, but they have never actually have any evidence of it, and I wouldn't be certain in that case. I'd be examining yourself. But here we see evidence. Second Timothy chapter four, verse 16. Paul says, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. This is his final letter. He's on his way to see the Lord. We see it's, he's being poured out as a drink offering. May it not be counted against them, verse 17 of second Timothy four, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. Notice what Paul says. This is the end of his life. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to what? His heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Back in our passage. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing. Do that. Make certain. You can't manufacture it. It's only through a real relationship with Jesus. For as long as you do these things continually and habitually, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. You see, if your life manifests these things, every one, and they're increasing, it can't happen unless you really know Christ, by the way. You can't unless it's a fake baloney part. But from the heart... If you manifest it, you are making your calling and his choosing sure. You're making sure. It's the command, by the way, and I didn't say that earlier. He actually says, therefore, my brethren, be all the more diligent, imperative command, to make certain of his command. How so? By doing these things. By obeying the Lord's word. Right? So if your life has never manifest these characteristics, at best... You are blind and short-sighted, having forgotten your former purification from sins. Are you blind and short-sighted? Confess. Allow God's word to work in your heart on a daily basis and step out and applying all diligence, supply those things as you trust Jesus Christ. Make every effort to make your calling sure. But there's some of you here that you've never manifest all of these characteristics. You never manifest them at all. And therefore, there's no surety to the salvation that you think you have. Examine your hearts to see if you're in the faith. A good tree does not produce bad fruit, and a bad tree does not produce good fruit. Our passage is pretty simple. In the context of faith in Jesus Christ... And his precious and magnificent promises working in your heart, step out in obedience and diligently begin to manifest these things. Make certain it's an evidence you're on your way to glory. If not, you're short-sighted and blind. Ask God to open your eyes to your sin, to have you focus on the truth and what he's doing in your life and step out and supply these things. And lastly, maybe you don't know the Lord. Turn to him. Acknowledge your state. Lord, I... That's not me. I've never manifest characteristics. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt 
be saved. Be diligent to make certain his calling and choosing for you. Now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. 
Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.